It is the pastor's heart in Dominic Steele. Thanks for joining us. Islam is making the most of the World Cup. Sam Green is with us. It is World Cup final week, the big final this Sunday in Qatar. Today, our focus is on the off the field action and how Muslims globally, but especially in the Middle East, are attempting to use the World Cup for proselytizing purposes. Sam Green works in campus ministry for the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students and his special interest for over 20 years has been on reaching Muslims for Jesus Christ. Sam, um, uh, there have been all sorts of stories in the public media about the culture war bumps between the West and East, stories about alcohol and LGBT concerns at the um, World Cup, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. It is indeed, and thanks for having you on your program. Uh, It's the tip of the iceberg. Muslims have uh, really made the most of the World Cup to promote Islam. So they've got their biggest speakers in the world to come in and be giving talks there. They've got placards all throughout Qatar. They've got testimonials from European soccer players who have converted to Islam. They're really using it as much as they can. I was at a church last night and one of the men that was there said that while he was watching the soccer on YouTube, he was just getting uh, the algorithm was giving him all these conversion stories, and he hadn't really looked the them up game. during the soccer game on on uh, on the YouTube side yeah. panel. And I assume that's going out to lots of people. So they are certainly using it for what they call dawa. The word dawa means invitation, and that's uh, that's you know we would use the word evangelism. They would mm-hmm. use the word dawa, and they're they're making the most of it now. Um, we've seen um, Christians over the years attempt to use things like the Olympics and those kind of mm. things for evangelistic purposes. I, I actually was never convinced it was worth the effort and the energy. Um, but there's a difference between what's going on here with the World Cup in that the government, when we when we think about the Sydney Olympics or the London Olympics, the government is agnostic to faith, whereas here you have the government clearly pro-Muslim in the faith and actually working hand in glove with the, the Dawa efforts. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's on a different scale altogether when the government gets involved. Mm. Um, what success are they having? Oh, look... It's a little hard to know exactly because there's what they present to you, and that is all these conversion stories. What's happening on the ground, I'm not 100% sure, but certainly it's a great time of excitement for the Muslim world as, they, as they're being um, highlighted in this way. And they've been using this effort as an attempt to uh, motivate Muslims to be better at outreach, be better at yeah. dawah. How has that played out? Well, it, it certainly has in that on the social media networks that I'm involved with. And you are uh, involved in a lot of social media networks in yes. terms of this dialogue. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, t- certainly the Muslims I know there are, are very excited about this time and promoting what's happening. Mm-hmm. In the pastor's heart, how did you get engaged in this? How, how was your heart moved to care mm. for Islamic Men and women. Yes. So I became a Christian in my first year at university. And a short time after that, I was started to share the gospel with the, with my friends around me. Some of them were Muslim. And what I found was that they were equipped to reject the gospel and challenge me very firmly uh, about the, the authenticity of the gospel. And so I started to see that Muslims were in a a different category to the other people I was evangelizing. 
Uh, so just because just like I as an evangelical might work out, actually, I've got this particular approach if I'm talking to a Roman Catholic and this particular approach if I'm talking to a secularist, um, they would have a little a pattern for working on you as a man of faith, a man yeah. of Christian faith. Y- yes. Now, I think the difference there, say with a Roman Catholic, is that Islam comes roughly 600 years after Christianity. Mm-hmm. And so what this means is that when you read the Bible, you, you never read about Islam. Mm-hmm. You don't have the apostles in the book of Acts evangelizing mm-hmm. Muslims, which they would if they were doing it today. Mm-hmm. And so when we read the Bible, we learn about Islam in a general sense, you know, false prophets mm. and people who change the gospel. But we don't learn about, we don't know what Islam teaches to know if he is a false prophet or if he has changed the gospel. We've then got to go and do that extra step to mm. find out. But when you read the Quran, it's 600 years later. And after 600 years, Christianity spread through mission um, to many places. Mm. It's down the Arabian Peninsula. It's all over the place. And the result of this is that Christianity is a major subject in the Quran. It's a major subject in the Quran. Often when we teach about Islam, when Christians teach about it or schools teach about it, we'll teach the five pillars of Islam. Mm-hmm. But really, Christianity is a larger subject than those five pillars. So, for instance, the Quran doesn't say pray five times a day. That, that comes from elsewhere. It doesn't give you the shahada in the way that Muslims would say that. Uh, and so these all come from other books. But when it comes to Christianity, it talks about the cross. It talks about the Trinity. It talks about the incarnation. It talks about the fatherhood of God. It explains to Muslims how they're to interpret the Bible. It gives them hermeneutics, right, for the Bible. Mm-hmm. It gives them a political agenda for the Christian world. So it gives them a huge amount of preparation. And so when you talk to a Muslim, uh, you know, one of my first experiences was I knew little about Islam. And so I was, uh, c- it was a complete imbalance of knowing mm. about each other. And, and so my heart there was really, th- this is actually quite a serious challenge to the mm. church. I want to bring the gospel to these people, but I also see Christians not knowing how to respond. And I see the occasional Christian converting to Islam. And I said, we really need to be looking after the sheep. We need to be defending God's people, defending the truth of the gospel. And uh, I was trained at uh, at the University of New South Wales uh, that if you see a ministry that needs to happen, go and uh, do it. <laughs> uh, just start doing it, you know, start mm-hmm. doing it. And so, uh, you know, it was from experiences like that and it all came together. And I said, you know, we need some people from our evangelical community in this area doing this work. And I seemed to be the one who, who was there. And so I just started doing it. So what's your word to people like me, senior pastors of churches as, as, I mean, there are so many priorities before me. Mm-hmm. I've, I've got to get upskilled in this area. I've got to get upskilled in that area. Um, and, I can see that this is something I, I should be doing, but I haven't. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, well, I guess what I'd say to pastors is you may look at your suburb and think there's not many Muslims in my suburb, but that's only half and maybe not even half of where particularly the youth in your area are living. They're living online and online they are probably being exposed to the arguments of Islam. And so I know of a a few very sad situations where uh, uh, churches in very white areas, Mm -hmm. away from multicultural Australia, but the the youth are online 
and they, they pick up all these Islamic Tell them ideas. About a pastor's daughter who was led away from Christ. Yes, and I've actually heard that there are a few stories of this of missionaries who have gone out onto the field and through the internet become Muslims. And yes, and so uh, Christian girls through the internet becoming Muslims. Uh, basically, it's, uh, as I said, because Islam talks so much about Christianity, what it means is that the Muslim world has had 1,400 years of engaging with the Christian world and uh, developing their arguments on how to convert Christians. And I think pastors just need to be aware of that and that through the internet, you know, young people are being exposed to this. And so you don't know what your young people are listening to or what they're hearing because through the internet they can be anywhere. So elevator pitch, what do I need to know okay. about Islam? So what I'd say is that you need to know some basics. The great thing about Islam, and this is what I find in my work, I think that many people see my work as, as sort of what you're indicating here, as a, a bit of a side tangent possibly mm-hmm. to what I really need to be doing. But Islam asks us these questions. Mm-hmm. It asks us about salvation. Mm-hmm. It's not a bad question to be asked. Mm-hmm. It asks us about the Trinity and the character and nature of God. That, that's a great question. It asks us about our Christology, about the person of Jesus. Uh, and it asks us about the reliability of the Bible. I would argue that the Islamic world actually asks us more important questions than what the secular world is asking us at the moment. Because at the moment, it's it's all on gender and those types of questions, mm-hmm. which are important questions. Mm. But gender doesn't get as much space in the Bible as compared to salvation, trinity, incarnation, and the scriptures. So are you and, saying there's richer ground uh, then for uh, for for evangelistic outreach to the Muslim and to the um, the secularist who is in a different space to us on teaching on gender? Yeah, absolutely. And see, from my experience of travelling around to many churches and running seminars again and again and again, I find that as Christians, we're, we're well prepared for talking about salvation although we may not understand Islamic salvation, but we're, we're prepared to talk about salvation, but we're not practiced in talking about the Trinity or the incarnation. And so as I go around most places I go to, we're not very good at that. Now, that's because we haven't had to do it. Mm. But uh, And so part of my work is just practicing and learning how to better articulate those Gospels, and that's what I try to help people through in my book and website and through debates where I model these things to people. And so my argument is that when you're engaging with Muslims, you're actually in a deeper, more biblical area of discussion. And so it's not a distraction. It's actually a helpful place that makes you learn your doctrine. So, I mean, I know this is going to be an artificial situation, but um, uh, if if I was a Muslim, we were at a coffee shop. Um, You don't know that much about me. How would you go? What would you say? Yeah. Give me a- yeah, absolutely. And this is my first session. So since Islam, as I've already spelled out, discusses Christianity and warns Muslims against Christianity in so many ways. So, so you'd be saying, so Dominic, um, you would know, of course, from the Quran, Dominic, that uh, you're warned about people like me. No, what I would say is, as I was saying, the... Because Muslims are taught and prepared for us, 
that door swings both ways. Right, okay. The door swings both ways. So that means that they may well have a preparation to talk to you, Mm -hmm. but it also means they're meant to know about Christianity. Just think about that. Mm -hmm. Being a Muslim means... One of the topics in the Quran, a large topic, is you're meant to learn about Christianity. So give me your sentence. So here's my sentence. I just need to give that background so you can understand the sentence. Uh, What I say to them is, what have you heard about Christianity? What have you been taught? Good. Mm -hmm. And then I just listen to them. I don't try to correct them. And I find out who they are. I I did that to one Muslim and he said, you've changed the Bible. Uh, Jesus never died on the cross. And, you know, he's not the son of God. And I went, oh, okay, great. And I spoke to another Muslim and he said to me, um, I, I don't. I know nothing. Mm-hmm. I know nothing, and I went okay. So I, I shouldn't assume too much here. And mm-hmm. We just started reading the Bible straight away, right? Yeah. And then I spoke to another one, and he said, "Oh, my parents have told me not to talk to you." Now he was an older man, but he said, "My parents have told me not to talk to you." But he'd come to church. You know, he was mm-hmm. old enough, and he, he decided to come. But that was also good to know that there might be some family hesitation or you know mm-hmm. pressure there, and so that's where I begin, and I just listen to them and find out where they are. And then after I've done that, I would say to them, can I show you one thing about Christianity? Mm -hmm. And I've always had them say yes. And I say, can I show you what books are in the Bible? Now, it takes a little more time to explain this. But in brief, I take my first Bible study with a Muslim is the table of contents. Mm -hmm. And from there, I show them that it's Christians who believe all the the prophets. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that gives them an assurance that Islam is right is that they believe all the prophets. I already believe in Jesus. We believe in all the prophets. And so I don't need to listen to you because I already believe in Jesus. And so what I want to show them is that they don't believe the prophets. And I do that from the table of contents. And I say, look, here are all the prophets. And I explain the table of contents and show some of the books and the prophets. And then I'll compare that to the Quran and say, do you see how the Quran is just one man telling you about the prophets? And I think this is a really key thing that pastors and Christians need to know that Islam, it's not the religion of the prophets. It's the religion of one man telling you about the prophets. And in this way, Islam is identical to the Baha'i religion because in the Baha'i religion, you have to believe in all the prophets too. Mm. So the Baha'i, they believe in Muhammad, Mm -hmm. but they only believe what their prophet says about Muhammad. Right. And so you just need to show this to Muslims. Well, this is how I like to to start my conversations. Mm-hmm. No, no doubt there are other ways people I mean, do it. That sounds really good. Well, I'm, I'm just thinking most of my conversations with Muslims are in the 15-minute taxi ride between yeah. here and the airport, and I can't work out how to do that in the taxi ride. So, well, yeah. well, it takes practice, but I do it all the time. You do? Yeah, I do it all the time. I, I've, I've done it several times this month Okay, where I will talk to them and just say, what have you heard? And then explain the difference of the Bible and say, do you see how... You know, really from, from how I look at things, you just follow Muhammad while I'm following all the prophets. Mm. And that just sort of changes the ground. It, yep. hel- it helps Christians to not be deceived when a Muslim says, we believe in Jesus, we believe all the prophets. Mm. And you're going, hang on, no, you don't. Yeah. Right? You're like the Baha'i, you believe in one man who tells you. And, and it, it helps the Muslim to understand the difference, to go, wow, I didn't know that about the Bible. Mm. And it actually makes the Bible interesting and intriguing to them. Yeah. Great. Christians visit a mosque. Should Christians visit a mosque? I think that that is a question that we need to answer from 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, Mm -hmm. in that you don't want to cause a a young Christian to stumble, and you don't want to cause the wrong impression 
to the Muslims who, who mm-hmm. may be there. And so if I'm with a team of Christians who are, are clear on the gospel, clear about Islam and its, its errors, then I'm happy to take them to the mosque. Mm-hmm. But if, if I had a, a young, young convert, um, even like school children, taking a group of school children there, and, you know, I might be giving them the idea that, you know, we go to church, we go to the mosque and the man gets up and gives a speech and the teacher doesn't say anything. And so that may not be helpful for, for you know, people who are not firm in their faith. Mm-hmm. So that's how I do it. It's one of those uh, causing the weaker brother to stumble type of issues. Mm. Engagement with Islam in our preaching. Yes. Now, because Islam doesn't come up naturally in the Bible, it means we have to learn extra stuff from it. One of the ways I'm trying to help pastors there is that I'm writing an article at the moment called Illustrations About Islam for Sermons. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying, to, I'm trying to find good quality comparisons where you could bring them up. So one example would be from Surah 33 of the Quran. And this is where, and you could do this with uh, 2 Samuel, I believe it's chapter 11 with David and Bathsheba. Uh, David covets another man's wife and goes ahead with the act and is rebuked by the prophet. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so God rebukes him. In Surah 33, Muhammad sees another man's wife. He covets her. He wants her. The husband, the man's going to divorce the wife for Muhammad, but it's his adopted son. She's his daughter-in-law. And so you know, I mean, he shouldn't be coveting another man's wife anyway. Mm. But then in Surah 33, you can read Allah, ado- ab- Allah cancels all adoptions. So all adoptions are cancelled. And so she's, he's, this man is no longer Muhammad's adopted son, which means the woman he's married to is no longer his daughter-in-law. And then a bit later on in that Surah, it says Allah has given her to Muhammad. And so you've got these two coveting experiences and very different God's giving answers to them. Yeah, so I'm, tr- you know, I can give you. Uh, I'm trying to make and, material. And a power dynamic at play in both of them. Y- yes, yeah. yeah, and so there are some really uh, quite shocking stories mm. in Muhammad's life. You know, in Surah 33, he gets privileges to take any woman, and it says this is a privilege given to you alone and to no other believer. So he gets all these privileges for women. He sounds like a cult leader. Well, in Surah 33, you you actually start to feel that in a whole range of ways. So I'm trying to gather resources so that ministers can give illustrations. I'm just thinking Uh, about preaching. I mean, one of the lines we've thought about in terms of um, uh, if I want to reach a particular group, I preach as if they're in the room. Yes. And uh, so I, I, I don't speak of the um, the gay person or the person struggling with gender dis- gender incongruence as somebody out there, but is, as if they're present here. Yeah. And if I speak like that, um, uh, you might have this struggle, you know, then in time it will teach our congregation that this is a safe place to bring those people. Mm. And so how do I preach as though they're in the room or how would that principle apply? Yes. Well, first of all, I want to say I've what I've just said to you then I've sat in front of 1,000 beards and burkas mm-hmm. at a big meeting. I was invited mm-hmm. to speak, speak in Bankstown, and you, you can see the debate, and I brought that up. I just said it very I, gently. I think and, it would have had power. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. so I, I just said it very gently, and I just said, this is the reason why I don't accept Muhammad. How is it also, I'm just thinking you'd probably also say the um, on those ideas of um, salvation and trinity, there'd be areas to speak toward 
to Islam there. Yes. So I'll give you two quick examples. One would be the Trinity. So with the Trinity, I think Christians often feel on the back foot. But I think one of the things we need to realize is that the Trinity is actually a really good solution. So Islam rejects the Trinity, but you've got to replace it with something. Mm -hmm. And so in Islam, God's breath, the Holy Spirit of God is the angel Gabriel, right? But that's where you end up, Yeah. right? So when you realize where you end up, when you reject the Trinity, you go, wow, that, that's really wrong. That's and, so crazy. <laughs> you, and so you can use that type of example in, yeah. in a sermon. You could talk about it and say, you know, if we, if we reject the Trinity, this is where we end up. And it helps people to see, yeah, that is a good solution, you know, that our, uh, the church fathers came up with. Another one would be with salvation. Very often we will think that uh, Muslims believe in salvation by works, and this is true. But then I think Christians go, oh, I know all about that because I've read the book of Galatians. Mm-hmm. But Muslims are not following the books mm. and arguments of Galatians. So in Islam, there's actually three ways to be saved. There's the jihadist martyr. They go straight to paradise. Mm-hmm. They, you can have full assurance in Islam. Uh, there's the good Muslim who goes into the grave and then various things can happen to them in the grave. And then there's the bad Muslim who goes into hell first and then into paradise later on, as long as he's believed in the oneness of God. And so, you know, we, we can spell out that and, and talk more intelligently about their doctrine of salvation rather than just saying it's a salvation of works. Mm. And so we can actually give some details. And if a Muslim was in the room that they would go, yes, the the martyrs do go straight to paradise and and we have to acknowledge that. What about the cross and the crucifixion in Islam versus Christianity? Mm. So the Quran speaks about the crucifixion in three verses and we most of the time Christians and Muslims focus on Surah 4 verse 157 to 158 and that's where it says that Jesus only appeared to the unbelievers to have been killed and crucified. Uh, but God raised him up to himself. And that's normally interpreted to mean that uh, that someone was substituted in Jesus' place. But it says that it only appeared that way to the unbelievers. And so, you know, it's, it's a little vague, uh, but that's the common interpretation, that it was Judas or someone who mm-hmm. did it. Though the Quran never says it's Judas. But And I've done this in a recent article, and it's, it's all available online on the crucifixion. The other two verses which speak about the crucifixion, which are Surah 3, verse 55 and 5, 117, they both use this word to, uh, which is only ever used. It's used 24 times in the Quran, and it's this word mutawafiki, and it means to take your soul in death. And that's the only way the word is ever used, and that's used twice to describe the crucifixion. And so... uh, I was just having a debate recently with Shabir Ali, and he acknowledged that, you know, for me to say that Jesus was on the cross and he only appeared to the unbelievers to have died and everything else, he said that that was quite an acceptable interpretation because I'm I'm trying to apply the same exegetical tools that I've learned as an evangelical. When I apply them to the Quran, you, you get a slightly different answer to what's often said. So... Um, the common view is that somebody replaced Jesus, but when you read it a bit more carefully, uh, I think it's saying something different. Again, I've got a booklet on that that you can download where I, I take you through all these different interpretations and everything else. But I think if a Muslim was saying to me, Jesus never died on the cross, I'd just look up a few of these verses and, and show them that 
um, that that's not the case. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us. A pleasure to be with you. My guest on The Pastor's Heart, Sam Green. And uh, Sam, uh, well, he's involved in the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Student Ministry in Tasmania and is also uh, the AFES's key guy in terms of outreach to Muslims. And uh, you've been with us on The Pastor's Heart. We will look forward to your company next Tuesday afternoon. Hey, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we would love it if you could hop over to the Apple Podcasts app and give us a rating and review. That helps us in the rankings and lets other people discover the pastor's heart. And again, if you are able to help us out by being a financial partner, go to our Patreon link, patreon.com slash the pastor's heart.